This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Harbir Singh, co-director of the Mac Institute and a professor of management. Just a reminder, we are live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and the show replays a few times throughout the week. Coming up in just a few minutes, I'll be joined by Ken Kosiander, a software engineer who worked at Apple for 15 years on projects, including the iPhone and the iPad. He also was on the team that, in, that invented iPhone autocorrect, so a lot of stuff to talk about with him on the invention process. Speaking of Apple, there's some astonishing statistics that I wanted to to share with you. Uh, some of them are well-known. Apple has a market value of $1.019 trillion. That's $1,019 billion. Uh, the iPhone alone accounts for 62% of the revenue of Apple. That means almost $600 billion of revenue comes from the iPhone alone. And then if you think about the market cap of of Apple, in 2006, it was about 20% of this. And in 2010, it was about 40% of today's market cap. In 2016, it was 60% of today's market cap. And today, it is um, you know, $1, billion, $1 trillion. The other thing to remember is that a lot of the revenue comes from a single product, the iPhone. It also has many other products, but sometimes we think about Apple as a as an ecosystem of products, the iPad, the iPhone, the iWatch. But we can just think about how a company that at one point was not the dominant company in computers and such applications is now the most valuable company in the world. And clearly, a major source of that success is from a product that, in fact, Ken Goshenda was very much part of. So one of the things we'll talk about today is how he saw the development, how we, the, the inner workings of the development of the iPhone. And there are, there's a lot of discussion around this. And the book that he has written, actually, which we will talk about, illustrates that some of the discussion may be wrong, that you really have to have an, when you have an internal view, what, what seems to be emerging is that this was not so much a user review-based design. It was much more an internal product development process so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about this internal product development process called creative selection that uh, that he was very much involved with. And then when we come to Internet security, today what's very interesting in the boardrooms of most large corporations and, in fact, corporations beyond the world of finance, the issue of Internet security is paramount. And then we also have the issue of um, of where people store their passwords and their, their documents. And uh, Louis Gasparini's company has come up with a, a very secure and, and a, a kind of an easily accessible way of actually storing your key documents. And so the second half of the show is also really interesting. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation. I'm Harbir Singh. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show my first guest, Ken Koshenda, a software engineer who worked at Apple for 15 years under the leadership of the legendary Steve Jobs. He worked on the first versions of the Safari web browser, the iPhone, 
the iPad, and the Apple Watch. He wrote about his experiences in his new book entitled Creative Selection, Inside Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve Jobs. Ken, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, it's great to be here with you. And I think you've, I absolutely think your book is fascinating. I have, uh, you know, it, it was something that really kept me engaged throughout. And uh, I think what's fascinating is, to me, is the, the process of development. So uh, you have a scene in the book about pitching to Steve Jobs. So tell me what that experience was like, uh, pitching your design to Steve Jobs. Well, Steve was so focused on making great products. That's what he cared about. And really, if I had one word to describe my experiences with Steve, both uh, personally presenting him work and working at the company that he founded and led throughout this wonderfully creative period, it would be focus. Mm -hmm. That's he cared about making great products and, and he focused on that to an incredible degree. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, that also meant that he cared less about, how should I say, social graces or uh, maybe some of the, you know, kind of the friendly interpersonal aspects of working in, a, uh, you know, a pleasant, productive working environment that I think a lot of us assume. Um, and, and so it was that focus that was really uh, paramount for him. So, for, for example, when I brought him a proposal for a new piece of software, a feature for a new product, or uh, a, a, an aspect of the iPhone like the software keyboard, uh, if he didn't like it, he would say so in no uncertain terms. Mm -hmm. He could be very intimidating with his feedback even. Right. Um, but the, the point was that we were, we were really interested in improving the product uh, uh, every step of the way. And having this feedback be such an important part of the process throughout the, the, the development, mm -hmm. uh, the, the long chain of iteration that we, uh, that, we, that we used to take our ideas and turn them into products, it was really important to make sure that this feedback came through mm -hmm. loudly and clearly at each step. And that's what Steve did. Uh, and so, you know, it, the, the thing, uh, from my standpoint, working as a programmer, uh, it was worth kind of running the gauntlet that, 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 that could be, uh, mm -hmm. that, that Steve could present uh, 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 through his harsh feedback and, and, and his, you know, sort of intimidating manner. Because if I could get his approval, that meant the work would, my work would go out into the world into an Apple product. Mm -hmm. So you had to just be prepared for the roller coaster and be prepared for some very, very straightforward feedback. So in fact, you, uh, you talk about the demo and you talk about um, how, you know, you had the, there were two different uh, versions of the, the virtual keyboard and after demonstrating that, uh, Steve, um, and you, of course, there's a lot of suspense. And um, we only, he said, we need only one of these, right? And you um, said, yes, I guess so. And he says, he sized me up and asked, which one do you think we should use? A simple question clearly directed at me and only me. Tell me how you felt about that and, and how you handled that process. You know, it's it's really, I have two answers to that question, one in, in the moment and one longer term as I've reflected. But in the moment, 
uh, I gulped. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it 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 was you know I, I, again the the uh, it was always a very very high pressure high stress prospect to show work to Steve mm-hmm. the um, because his word counted for so much when it came to getting. Uh, what amounted to the final approval to get uh, to to uh, to choose what how how the product would look and feel and work for people out in the world, mm-hmm. and so uh, I in the moment I fell back on the experience uh, that led up to the demo, which was weeks and 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 just day after day, hour after hour. Uh, focusing myself uh, uh, on this demo that I was there to present to him. So we presented two options to him, and he demanded that I choose one. And I realized in the moment that I knew which one I liked better. Right. And, and so I just, to- I just told him that. And you said he continued looking at me after asking the, asking the question as he thought about my answer and he said he never moved his eyes to anyone or anything else. He was completely present. And then he said, um, okay, we'll go with the bigger keys. And that was it. The Oracle of Apple had spoken, and the software design prophecy had been revealed, and that was that. Yeah. Right? So yeah, it was that... a dramatic moment and something that actually became part of every single piece of hardware that was sold uh, you know, for many years to come. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was um, the decisiveness that Steve could demonstrate in these moments was remarkable. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, was willing to, you know, he, you know, to use like a poker analogy, you know, he was willing to go all in mm-hmm. uh, when uh, he saw a piece of work presented by someone like me, and he trusted my opinion in that moment, which, which again, you know, the second part of the answer, I mentioned the two-part answer. As I've reflected on that very, very brief interaction with him where he asked, he saw a demo, there were two choices. He thought we should only have one. He asked me in my opinion, uh, and I told him, and then he went with it. Uh, it was just a very, very quick uh, uh, decision-making process. And what was remarkable to me is that, you know, the legend of Steve Jobs is that he was the one making all the choices, mm-hmm. that he was the genius who could see uh, around corners that mere mortals uh, couldn't. Uh, and that um, what stands out for me in my memory is that he turned to me and asked my opinion uh, and was guided in his final decision by uh, his trust in me. Uh, you know, you know, an individual programmer who, uh, you know, through the through our creative process and through our product development process, I was charged with the responsibility to come up with this, uh, with this software. And in the moment, he, uh, when when the choice was there to be made, he uh, he trusted in in my opinion, uh, and, which is and which so is quite it, amazing, right? Because it was very much an a software engineering view. And, yeah. uh, you know, it was a, a piece of software that was part of the other software that went into this, this uh, you know, complex product. But he, he got in very deep into the details, but then he also had the larger picture in mind. So let me ask you, 
sort of there's a debate about, you know, design, you know, these days as to whether, you know, how much should be user-driven and how much is sort of driven by what, you know, the what you call the the demo and the feedback and the and the revised demo the the creative selection process and it seems to me that what you're suggesting is that as you as you began to say it was not about looking around the corner on user uh, future user reviews as much as it was continuous continuous product development right product development as a driver of innovation can we can we talk a bit more about that sure the the approach that we had was was very much <clears throat> based on living on <clears throat> living on the products as we made them in other words we tried to make demos and prototypes as opposed to writing design documents or drawing sketches on whiteboards as a comparison instead we focused on making demos making the actual demo right products that right. we could try ourselves as if these early stage or mid stage or even late stage products were the actual products that people would eventually be picking up and trying and hopefully buying in the stores mm-hmm. and so throughout the whole development process we tried to mimic what the eventual customer the eventual experience that people would would have with these products uh in in their lives with them and that's what uh, and so this, this was a this was a sense this was essential to us this is how, this is this is why we were were able to uh do away with a lot of the sort of you know design preliminary you know whiteboard uh you know sort of nebulous uh, thinking because we always tied it back to making something that was as real as we could approximate in the moment, wherever we were in the product development cycle. For those who are just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Harbir Singh. I'm speaking with Ken Koshenda, former Apple engineer and author of the new book, Creative Selection. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call. The phone lines are open at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two. Seven eight six six. So, just coming back to what you said, um, Ken, I think that you made a fascinating point. In some sense, there were there are two opposing forces. One of them is uh, functionality. Functionality would add complexity to the product. As you add more functions, the product becomes more complex. But then, I think in your demo and and uh, feedback process, you have the idea of usability, which goes the other way, right? You have to simplify. And and so what's fascinating is that at least for me as a as an outsider, Apple was able to exceed the industry by quite a big margin on usability, right? And you talk at the end of that demo how, in a sense, Steve Jobs was very much focusing on on the basic usability standard and giving specific feedback to to simplify the interface. Right. Well, he one aspect of his focus was to picture himself as a customer. I I thought of him when I demoed to him that he was customer number one, Mm -hmm. as if he was the first person outside of the walls of Apple who was seeing the product and was evaluating it uh, as 
you know, someone who uh, was considering bringing this this new piece of technology uh, into his life. Uh, and, and uh, of course, he had extraordinarily high standards. And he was always on the lookout for things that were extraneous or seemed confusing mm-hmm. or weren't a clear representation or a clear implementation of the the job the software was trying to accomplish. And so in, in the example we've been talking about, you know, that was the option I was presenting him of two keyboards uh, that, that did the same thing but had slightly different features and functions. One had bigger keys and one had more keys. Right. He said, no, 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 no we're, we're, we're going to just choose one of these. The bigger keys, and the yes. ID, Right, and the idea behind that was if you eliminate that choice, that then frees up the mind of the person using the product to think about maybe the email that they're trying to write or the message they're trying to send. Exactly, yes, fascinating. Right, right, or, or, you know, uh, instead of juggling, well, which keyboard do I choose, which one do I want, they can juggle instead, I'm going to send this text message while also juggling in their mind the meeting that they're walking down the hallway towards, right, you know. Right. Uh, so they, they, right? Yes. So they led the market in some sense because of the ongoing simplima- simplification while still adding more and more functionality. So I wanted to ask you, I, when I read the book, I see very much a, a software engineer, you know, and a design process, a team, continuous improvement. It's wonderful, you know, because it's in the trenches. Uh, but looking at your, tell us a little bit about your career journey. You started at in, at Yale in undergrad in history. Uh, you taught English in Japan. Um, you you repaired motorcycles, and then you came back and became a software engineer. Um, and, and just tell us about the journey. How did that all add up to where you where you made your biggest contributions? Right. Well, I you know I consider myself a generalist. Uh, I I have always, uh, throughout my life, uh, you know, just sort of followed my nose, uh, did what seemed to be interesting um, right in front of me, uh, and that led me on the sort of circuitous path that you mentioned. Uh, I studied history in college, not computer science. Uh, I. I really had very, very little formal training as a programmer. Uh, Mostly I taught myself uh, as a result of uh, going through uh, life and and pursuing uh, the the area of interest that that led me to programming was actually photography. Uh, I was. Oh, that's right. Uh, you were a, you were doing fine photographs as well. That's right. Yeah, and and it's, I discovered the World Wide Web in in the early nineties uh, mm-hmm. as a, as a result of studying photography. Uh, I was in an art school, and one of my professors one night uh, showed us this this new thing, the World Wide Web. He dialed the modem and he connected to uh, uh, Yahoo when that website was text only there were no pictures mm-hmm. but it was clear that that pictures were starting to be you know digital photographs uh, digital imagery was starting to come to the web uh and and he showed us uh, you know a demo of of mosaic the web browser and so 
you know, I, I became interested in that. And that one thing led to another. I learned HTML and started making websites yeah. and then programming for websites and then making databases for websites. And, and just one thing led to another. And I taught myself programming. And then through a succession of startups around the dot-com boom era of the early 2000s, uh, I, went, you know, I met some people and uh, wound up uh, getting a job at Apple. Amazing. What a what a wonderful story. And I think what you're saying is I really like the point about being a generalist but following your nose. I think that that combination. Let me ask you, actually, so you um, we wrote in the book the subtitle. It's called Creative Selection Inside Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve Jobs. Tell us what you refer to as the golden age of Apple design. Well, to me... It, it, when I joined Apple in 2001, uh, the Macintosh was Apple's only product. And mm-hmm. it was actually four months after I joined that the iPod came out. Now, mm-hmm. that's not the iPhone, of course. That's the iPod, the music-playing uh, uh, hardware. Yes. Uh, and so when I joined, Apple was really uh, an underdog. Absolutely. In, in a computer industry that was still dominated by Intel and Microsoft, Microsoft and, yes. Wind- and Windows. And by the way, just and as so, an aside, just before you continue, just to illustrate that point, the market value of Apple in 2001 was $5 billion. Today it's $1,019 billion, 200 times the value. So right. you came in right. at a very, very early stage. I came, I came in at a point where I was both a witness and to the best that I could, as a contributor uh, Mm -hmm. to this change that Apple underwent, which was, uh, in in my estimation, sparked by Steve's vision for the company. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to re-wage the desktop operating system wars that Microsoft and Intel won. Instead, he retargeted the company uh, to uh, these personal technology devices, like the iPod, and then the iPhone, and then the iPad, and then the Apple Watch. Yes, uh, amazing. So it yes. was, uh, you know, rethinking what it what what Apple could do given its its background, its experience, its culture, its so let me ask you this. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but let me ask you. So Steve Jobs was forced out of the company earlier because they thought he was not a good marketing person. He was an engineer. He came back, right? And he and clearly there's a causal factor in his coming back and the remarkable transformation of Apple in a way that no one has ever seen before in any company. So the same person was at once at one point considered not value creating. And when he comes back, he creates enormous value, and he is he possesses vision that actually is realized. How did that happen? You know, I I think it was an evolution. Uh, I, obviously, Steve was you know in that in his first stint as the company. Well, first of all, he founded it, and then the Apple II was a very successful product, mm-hmm. and the Macintosh was an incredibly innovative product, even though initially it wasn't that successful in the market. And of course, that part of that was 
uh, was was the the rationale behind uh, firing him essentially. Mm-hmm. And when he went away, I I think he 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 thought long and hard about that whole experience, and he came back a uh, an older and a wiser man. And and we we've seen then the the result of that it's you know you've given some of the numbers and and those speak very clearly to uh the the success of 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 his ability to create a vision around some products that i think that's around the world yes want yes exactly so that's i think uh I completely agree with this particular point i mean you've of course been on the inside and I'm fascinated by everything you're saying. But the point you just made is extremely, extremely important that very few CEOs at the highest level can also inspire a team and get involved in the transformational details, the details that transform the product, right? And he was actually able to do that. And that's why I think there'll be very, very few Steve Jobses in the world, but maybe people can learn from this. As you said, he had the vision to inspire people and people created designs which they could go in detail and present to him. How yeah, astonishing is that? It is astonishing. I think that is an apt word. Uh, he had, I, I think part of the success was, again, part of the the, the external legend is in, in that he was hard driving, he was focused, he had a vision, and... He was very decisive as a top-down CEO. And yet, judging, you know, even just going back and referring back to the conversation that we've already had, he was also excellent at inspiring people like me to to, to give this bottom-up contribution. Even though he was not Uh, following the niceties that you talked about, right? So that is fascinating that people could see past that, that here was somebody who was you know, very, uh, in a way, very brusque and, uh, you know, uh, absolutely not sugarcoating anything. Uh, and yet people gave everything they could to work for him. I, uh, if, uh, I, I, I was, I, I'm, I'm stumbling over words because it, it's the thought of showing a demo to Steve Jobs t- t- today still gets me uh, excited! I, I am. I'm, I'm so happy that I had that opportunity. He just was a very charismatic person. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he had the ability to inspire people, and and it's uh, words fail to describe that. In uh, but it came through very very clearly um, when you were in his presence and when you worked at the company that he ran. Uh, it, it just came through so very clearly. And it was this combination to me that the part of the real magic was this combination of the top down leadership and the bottom up contribution uh, that and that it circulated and that by seeing demos from me and giving his decisive feedback and communicating his vision, sending me away to do work, editing the results that came back. Uh, it was this uh, really remarkable combination that uh, that that drove Apple forward uh, and and helped us create these uh, these wonderful products. So let's you know. So then we come to the fundamental question that you know: Can we bottle this, and can we continue beyond the individual leader? And certainly, Apple has um, has done very well with Tim Cook as well, 
but but you know there's a question of sustainability of that very uh, transformative innovation uh, that was going on and you you are actually in a very good position to tell us what you think about this yeah it's you know in in some ways you know tim cook had was was given the most difficult job imaginable in in high tech mm-hmm. which was to follow steve jobs as the ceo of apple uh, and uh, clearly he has uh, done a, a i i i think it's inarguable that he's he's done as as a good job i mean you mentioned some of the numbers mm-hmm. uh, about apple's continuing uh, 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 uh Increase in mm-hmm. its market cap, yes. which has continued again through through the time it's been just over seven years now since uh, since Steve's death, and so uh, you know, and I true. think and that if we look at if I think if we look at Apple today, and even just look at some of the products that were just announced uh, a, a few weeks ago, and and I'll just call out two examples: mm-hmm. the computational photography that's mm-hmm. in the iPhone. This this wonderful melding of software to improve the the quality of the photographs we can take with the phones that we carry around with us all all all, all the time. Mm-hmm. That, and then you look at the Apple Watch, the integration of more health features. Uh, you know this this uh, you know, this ECG. You know tracking our heart rates. If, right. if, if, the, if the watch can detect the problem, it, it may even you know go and, and contact our, our doctor for us. And so, uh, you know, the, the this kind of innovation is still is still happening. I think personally that the iPhone itself was a. Uh, was you know one of these you know platform or paradigm shifts, however you may want to say it, mm-hmm. that you know the, the, taking computers from our desktops and our laptops into our pockets that comes along maybe once in a generation. Oh, I think it's much uh, much more. I think it's much more than once in a generation, but of course we'll find out, right? So that's uh, we will find yes, out. And, yes, and so I think that it, it, looking ahead, I think Apple is very very well positioned mm-hmm. as it is right now to be. Uh, still driving a lot of the interesting innovation that we'll see in the future. And and my main concern at the moment is just the very high dependence on um, the revenues from from the iPhone. Uh, but so far, uh, you know, in fact, I was looking at this uh, line of market uh, market valuation, and in fact, the slope of the line increased after after Steve Jobs passing. But that's because the iPhone continued to globalize. And I guess my my last point on that, which is you know something I would love to hear your comment on, what I find astonishing is that this is such an expensive product, and yet people view it as a necessity. You know how do we square that? Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, I think we are still figuring that out. Uh, it is. You know, I would almost would have thought that phones would have become cheaper mm-hmm. over time, and of course we see that. In it is not following that trend exactly. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. Right, right. certainly, certainly. Uh, you know, you can go buy uh, inexpensive phones, and certainly in some markets, uh, uh, you know, Android and and other you know operating systems and other vendors are serving. Uh, phone uh, the market that is interested in less expensive phones, but Apple has been driving the average selling price of of its handsets up which mm-hmm. to me is remor- is remarkable um it it does go to show how much people do 
view this product as a necessity, that people yes. are, are deriving so much value from it right. that there is an increased willingness to spend more as time goes that by. Is, that is and the so, remarkable uh, and historically unusual trend. You know, we could we could talk so much more. I, I just uh, love what we've talked about already, uh, Ken, and you know, but I just um, I just want to thank you for joining me on the show today. Well, thank you so much. I've I've, I've enjoyed it. And uh, I know that our uh, I I hope that our listeners will uh, go and get your book called Creative Selection, which actually uh, really is a very different view on on innovation. It is much more around design and around demos and improvement, and it's sort of emphasizing the team-based innovation in the company, and you've done an absolutely spectacular job describing, you know, the dynamic within the team. So thank you very much for that. Um, and I suppose, so we can ask, where can our listeners keep up with you? Well, uh, you can uh, certainly find the book by just typing creative selection uh, mm-hmm. in uh, your favorite search engine or, or your favorite book vendor. Uh, and uh, other than that, I'm just a uh, going to be uh, following my nose. I've got some ideas for some future projects, and hopefully you will all hear about them. Some very formative stages now, but hopefully you'll be hearing about them when they are uh, ready ready to be uh, seen and experienced. Thanks so much. It's uh, wonderful. I'm your host, Harbi Singh. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Series XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.com dot upenn dot edu